0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Louise Mirror, New York Historical's president and CEO, and um, it's really just a great pleasure for me to see so many of you in our beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium this evening. I know that you will have, um, it will have been impossible for you to fail to notice if you came in on the 77th Street side, our great exhibition of toys and trains from the Journey Collection. Uh, fabulous, one-of-a-kind, totally unique collection that uh, came to us last year. And uh, I also do want to make sure that you're aware that we opened a great new show last Friday, Silicon City Computer History Made in New York, which uh, will be fun, engaging, and highly informative uh, for anyone who has forgotten that New York really did usher in the digital age. So uh, tonight's program, Sisters in Law, How Sandra Day O'Connor and Ruth Bader Ginsburg went to the Supreme Court and changed the world is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series, which is the heart of our public programs. As always, I'd like to thank Mr. Schwartz for his great support, which has allowed us to bring so many fine historians and writers and lawyers to this (laughs) stage. I would uh, like to recognize and thank three of our trustees who are in attendance this evening. Susan Danilo, the chair of our Chairman's Council, Rick Reese, who is the vice chair of our board, and Trustee Eric Wallach, I'd like to thank all of you for all you do on behalf of this splendid institution. Thank you. (laughs) Tonight's program will last about an hour and it will include a question and answer session. There will be a formal book signing following the program. And copies of our speaker's books will be available in our museum shop. We are so very pleased to welcome Linda Hirschman to the New York Historical Society, an acclaimed Supreme Court lawyer, author, and cultural historian. She's a former distinguished professor of philosophy and women's studies at Brandeis University. Her writing appears in numerous national news outlets, including the New York Times, Washington Post, and Newsweek. Dr. Hirschman is the author of many books, including A Woman's Guide to Law School and Sisters in Law, How Sandra Day O'Connor and Ruth Bader Ginsburg Went to the Supreme Court and Changed the World. We are also really glad to welcome back our moderator, Jeffrey Tubin. Mr. Tubin is a staff writer at The New Yorker and the senior legal analyst at CNN. He's the best-selling author of numerous books, including The Nine, Inside the Secret World of the Supreme Court. A miniseries based on his book, The Run of His Life, will be broadcast on FX in January 2016. Mr. Tubin is currently writing a book about the kidnapping of Patricia Hearst, and he's promised to come back and talk to us about the book when it's out next year. Now, um, just before we begin, I want to ask you to please make sure that anything that makes noise, like a cell phone, is switched off. And now, please do join me in welcoming our guests to the stage.
1: Hello, everyone. Linda Hirschman is even cooler than the Batmobile, so I just, you know, (laughs) so you are in for a treat. All right, so uh, these two women, they're the first two women on the Supreme Court, so that's an obvious tie between them, but that's not the only reason you wrote this book. What is the connective tissue that drew you to this as a subject?
2: So I write about social movements, and my previous book was Victory, the Triumphant Gay Revolution, so I'm interested in what enables people to act together, to cooperate with each other, to make social change. I wrote my dissertation on the subject of Thomas Hobbes, famously writing about how hard it was for people to cooperate. So I'm very interested in that. So I wanted to write about the feminist movement. It's a movement, it is in some ways the story of my life. And uh, But I also wanted to, to show that Women could cooperate and succeed in making the world a better place. So that's really what drew me to it. I did have a Walter Mitty fantasy that I would learn that they would sneak out to lunch together and go to the Ferragamo store. That was what I was hoping. But in fact, I think I can say with perfect faith that they did not. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Alas. Um, Alas. All right. But before we get to how they cooperated and didn't cooperate, let's talk about a little bit about them as human beings. Like, who are they? Who talk, Who Start with uh, Ruth Ginsburg. What's her background?
2: Start with the second of the two, the younger of That's the two. That's true.
1: But she's the New Yorker, so she gets- oh, There we go. With the New York okay. historical
2: society. <laughs> right. So um, she was the small brunette from Flatbush who um, was the daughter of a newly arrived, you know, immigrant father and first-generation mother. And her father had the good sense right before the Great Depression to go into the fur business. So they were not people of means. Um, and I always, you know, it's interesting to think about her as a, human being, because you think of her, and you sometimes think of a mind in a vat, right? She's so brilliant, and she's she is definitely the smartest person I've ever written about. Um, and yet, in a thousand ways, she and, and she's so brilliant, and she's sort of inner-directed, and so you get this idea that she's, you know, not a, a rich and warm three-dimensional person, but... One year, she took all of her clerks who had married one another, there were six or seven couples, to dinner on Valentine's Day. And, um, and they went to a very fancy Asian restaurant in Washington, Asia Nora. And when the time came for them to open their fortune cookies, each one had a love poem inside. So, and, so she was really inside a very warm and loving human being, as well as being absolutely brilliant. Sandra Day San O'Connor. Jay,
0: yes, that was going to be my next question, as <laughs> you guess. Yeah. Um,
2: Sandra Day O'Connor, um, the blo- the large blonde from the ranch in Southeast Arizona. I learned in the course of this book there was serious talk about running her for president. She was a really charismatic politician. Her last law clerk, Tolly Weinstein interviewed me and shared with me, she, of course, wouldn't talk to me when I wanted to write the book, but after it came out, she shared with me the story that you could not walk down a block with Justice O'Connor in Washington in under 15 minutes because she would sign every program and kiss every baby, even when she was life-tenured. So she was much more the natural politician. She was also the product of her culture, so she's very Western. She's very athletic, she's very voluntaristic, she's very um, open and egalitarian in her behavior, if not in her belief system. So they were, they look very different on the surface.
1: One thing that, they look very different, and and, you know, physically, uh, temperamentally, in terms of personality. One thing that struck me as similar Is their marriages?
2: Oh, that's interesting. Okay, so good. So they both had, as opposed to everything else.
1: (laughs) So talk about their marriages a little.
2: I love it when I get a question I haven't gotten before. Oh, good. Well, so um, so I will say this, and you know, just take it to the bank. If Martin Ginsburg comes back to Earth from heaven, he's mine.
1: Duly noted. He yes. was a
2: perfect husband. He was a perfect husband. They met when they were, like, 18. Ruth was 17. He was 18. They were students at Cornell. And she always said he was the first man she ever dated. She was, however, only 17, so I don't know how many people there were in that category. But um, who who appreciated her for her brain. And um, he was... Her great booster, and uh, he did everything right. He made a fortune as a brilliant tax lawyer. He, when he found out that she was not inclined to cook, he took up cooking and became a master chef. There's a cookbook. I <laughs> said, God, there's a cookbook. She's so smart, right? She didn't say, oh, I'm not going to cook. She just never learned to cook, and pretty soon the food got so terrible that Martin Ginsburg had to learn how to cook. There's a cookbook that the Supreme Court has issued from when he died, uh, of all, a collection of all his recipes called Master Chef. And,
1: and if, if I may interrupt, the, the bread recipe for how to make baguettes has 68 steps. <laughs> and only a tax lawyer could make a recipe <laughs> that has 68 steps. Um, it's really, it's kind of amazing. Um, so, um...
2: So they had a perfect But, but he marriage. was, I mean, he
1: was extremely
2: supportive. Um, so last... John, I'm last sorry, go ahead, yeah. Last night I was at the National Press Club Book Fair, and as I was wandering around to see what the competition was, um, I ran into Stephen Hess, who was uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's cousin, and is actually married to her cousin. And uh, he... and I said to him, oh, my God, it's Stephen Hess. You're in my book, because he helped make the campaign that put Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the Supreme Court. And um, Stephen Hess, who had never spoken to me in his life, looked right up and said, it was Marty. Marty put that campaign together. So that is what their marriage was like. Um, Sandra Day O'Connor and John O'Connor had a more conventional marriage. Um, she's only a couple years older than Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but there's a social difference between their eras that's much longer than two years. So um, O'Connor, being from the West, which was not as progressive and cosmopolitan a culture as where Ruth and Marty came from, is in history, like I write about historical uh, histories of cultural movements. So in history, it's m- much more retrograde. So she had a more conventional marriage with John O'Connor. Um, but she said, and I believe it to be true, that he knew from the beginning that she was going to try and have a career of her own, and that it was really important for, if you want it, for women, if they want to have a career of their own, they have to make that clear before they tie the knot. And she said that, and so obviously it was clear between them. On the other hand, Unlike with Bader Ginsburg, Sandra J. O'Connor went home every night and cooked dinner for herself and John O'Connor and their three sons, and um, she would get up at the crack of dawn and do the food shopping. So it was a much more conventional division of labor.
1: They didn't really know <clears throat> know each other. I mean, O'Connor's appointed in eighty one, Ginsburg's appointed in ninety three. So she, so O'Connor is the the only woman justice for twelve years. Right. Um, Ginsburg joins her in 93 what was the relationship between them
2: so when O'Connor was appointed Ruth Bader Ginsburg heard about it on the radio and she said that she was really glad to hear it but she had no idea who this person was so she o, uh, O'Connor was a relatively well-known character in Phoenix Arizona but
1: but that's it Right. I mean, she was. She wasn't even on the highest court in Arizona. No. She was on the intermediate appeals court she in was, Arizona. Yeah. She was
2: hearing uh, workmen's comp cases, yeah. appeals from workman's yeah. comp cases, in the in Arizona. But she was enormously talented. She was e- e- enormously talented. So anyway, Ruth Bader Ginsburg doesn't know who this is. I have a picture of. I've spotted the two of them together in 1983. Two years after, so we know it was no later than 1983, because I have a picture of the two of them together at a woman in the law conference at Georgetown. But when o, when O'Connor took the place of Potter Stewart, who famously gave up his seat for a woman, and um, and uh, she inherited Potter Stewart's clerk, Deborah Merritt, and Deborah Merritt had been Ruth Bader Ginsburg's clerk in the D.C. Circuit, Ginsburg's, Ginsburg's
1: already on the D.C. Circuit yeah, at this time. Yeah, Ginsburg's on the yeah. D.C.
2: Circuit. La- very last day or something of Jimmy Carter's term, they put Ginsburg on the D.C. Circuit. Right at the very beginning of Reagan's term, they put O'Connor on the Supreme Court. In the meanwhile, Deborah Merritt works for Ginsburg for a year, and then she goes up to the Supreme Court to Potter Stewart. So we know that O'Connor had one of Ginsburg's clerks her very first year. So that's, I think, the tie. What was their relationship like? We see them going places together, Okay, So in the um, Library of Congress, there are archives from the justices. And in Ruth Bader Ginsburg's files, I stumbled across a travel diary from a trip she took to Paris with O'Connor. And uh, I think Stephen Breyer was also on that trip. Um, And Breyer was on the First Circuit, and Ginsburg was on the D.C. Circuit, and O'Connor was on the Supreme Court. So there's this adorable little travel diary with a picture of a hot air balloon, like from around the world in 80 days, on the cover. And it's all in Ginsburg's handwriting, writing about her trip. And so she and O'Connor went to the Picasso Museum together, or something like that. And so they went places together they gave a paper together o'connor gave the paper because she was the supreme court justice and Gizberg commented on it so they we see them because they were i think in part the women they would go to events together once they sat on the supreme court together we see them going to a lot of things together okay, okay but but like those are facts but yes. like what were their what was the relationship so i would say they were not bffs We know there's a rich um, archival trove that documents O'Connor's warm friendship with Lewis Powell. So we know how she acts when she's really friends with someone. And everybody knows about Ginsburg and Scalia. But there is no evidence of a warm and intimate relationship between the two of them. And I think if there had been one, I would have seen it. Of course. Because I was pestering everyone to death all the time. And, but they had, and here's the message that I've been giving to the really wonderful gatherings of young women that I've been speaking to recently, and that is they had an affectionate alliance. And women can have an affectionate alliance, even if they're not BFFs, and that is one of the most important lessons, I think, to draw from the book. Recently, the New York Times uh, Dinner for Three person sat down and, uh, with uh, Gloria Steinem and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And I was so interested to note in that short piece that Ginsburg refers to O'Connor twice, right? When, and O'Connor is now fading into the history pages. It's 10 years since she sat on the court. But for Ginsburg, she's still very real. And since I believe that Ginsburg does nothing by accident, I think that she intentionally reminded us all about Sandra Day O'Connor that in doing that interview. It happens to be the case that both of the things that Ginsburg said about O'Connor are in my book, but I don't.
1: So, so you say, um, you know, the, the theme of the book is the, 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 basically the, the similarities, the likenesses, the, the alliance, as you put it. But these are two, I mean, what about all the stuff they disagreed about? You know, what what about the substantive business of being a Supreme Court justice?
2: Okay, so when when Ginsburg arrived at the Supreme Court, O'Connor had been there for 12 years. And apparently, when you get to the Supreme Court, there's like an oral tradition of stuff that you do and don't do that has to be communicated orally that you cannot know until you come. And Lewis Powell did that for O'Connor. You would have thought it would be Scalia, who was already Ginsburg's really good friend from the D.C. Circuit by then, but it was not. It was O'Connor. O'Connor wanted to make sure that Ginsburg succeeded. When when Reagan's office called O'Connor to say they were appointing her to the Supreme Court if she were confirmed, she said she was worried because it was okay to be the first, but she did not want to be the last. And when... Ginsburg came. O'Connor writes to Barry Goldwater. Those letters were a big part of the material I used in my book because the collection had just come open. She writes to Barry Goldwater about a whole bunch of other stuff. They were back and forth, writing back and forth all the time. And at the bottom of it, she just drops a PS. Justice Ginsburg is a very experienced and knowledgeable justice. She was glad to have Ginsburg be the second. But what about their politics? So I mean, okay.
1: they, they, they were different, I right? Mean, yeah.
2: Okay, so there were there were I counted it. I can't promise you that I've got it right, but I'm it's close enough for government work. There were 22 cases uh, involving women's rights that came before the court when the two of them sat together, and they voted the same way on all but two, right? Get O'Connor's record on women's issues, her just voting record, not her. Controversial, somewhat strange opinions, but her voting record, was the most liberal of all the areas that she voted in. Hmm. It was by far the most liberal. And so she and Ruth overlapped tremendously on those cases. And the one that they disagreed on was a federalism case, the relative roles of the federal and state governments. And that's something that O'Connor felt very strongly about states' rights. So... They were in agreement and I don't think they would have had an affectionate alliance if O'Connor had consistently voted conservatively on the women's cases that came up because that was the work of Ruth Bader Ginsburg.
1: Okay, uh, but with all due respect, the Supreme Court does a lot more than just women's rights cases. Oh, it nuts. does Bush v. Gore, it does uh, you know, uh, voting rights cases in which case they you know Bush Vigor most famously they were on opposite sides what did does that matter does that does that is it does that hurt their relationship was it irrelevant I mean what what
2: it was irrelevant it was irrelevant when Ginsburg got married O'Connor wanted Ginsburg to succeed Ginsburg regarded O'Connor as the pioneer and uh Ginsburg's clerk, t- that was her clerk when she, the first year she went on the court, told me that O'Connor mattered more to her than any other justice, including the Chief Justice, because she knew that when she came, I mean, look at this alliance building behavior. She knew when she came to the court that O'Connor's life was going to change, and she wanted it to be for the better. So she was extremely concerned with O'Connor. And so, they're going to disagree. She's friends with Scalia, right? I know, no, that's a fair point, right. yeah, yeah. And so when she married Marty, Marty's mother, we'll call her Mrs. Ginsburg, um, gave her daughter-in-law a wedding gift of a pair of earpox. <laughs> Sometimes Marty's mother said to her soon-to-be daughter-in-law, it pays to be a little deaf. <laughs> and both Ruth Bader... so. Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Sandra Day O'Connor have many things in common. They have similar characters, and one of the character traits that they share is that they are capable of being a little deaf. They were surrounded by men who were making life worse for women. My favorite example of this is Philip Curland, who had the misfortune of being my con law professor at the University of Chicago Law School, and then dying before somebody put a microphone on me. So I will tell you, his opposition to the Equal Rights Amendment was deadly and and indefensible. Nonetheless, Ruth Bader Ginsburg corresponded with him in the most amiable way for years. And when she wanted something, she asked him for it, and she got it. And Sandra Day O'Connor found herself on the opposite side of Barry Goldwater on the Equal Rights Amendment. And she corresponded with him in the most amiable way for years. They were really close. And when she was appointed to the Supreme Court, the anti-choice people in Arizona opposed O'Connor. They figured out correctly that she would ultimately not be a reliable vote to reverse Roe v. Wade. So they opposed her. And Barry Goldwater, who was like the conservative uh, in the country, much less in Arizona, came robustly to her defense. So they were capable of friendships or of strategic behavior across political lines. So for them to relate to one another across the divide, which was like this, is nothing in comparison to relating across the divide.
1: All right, so so you, you are, as well as a historian, you're a political person. I mean, you have strong views on these, uh, on these issues. Who, moi, right? And um, what's more important? Having women on the Supreme Court or having justices who advocate positions that you regard as important for women's rights? So? To to, to put it a different way, is it important that Clarence Thomas is on the Supreme Court because he's African American, or is it important to have, would it be more important to have a a white justice who votes in the interests of what you perceive to be the civil rights agenda? Right,
2: that's racial civil rights. Okay, so um, I would quote Sonia Sotomayor on that. She said famously that a wise Latina woman with the fullness of her experience might reach a better outcome than a white male judge who had not had her rich experience. So what I observed in both Ginsburg and O'Connor is not that they brought the fact that they wore skirts to the Supreme Court, just to use a ladylike euphemism, but that they brought the richness of their experience as women. They had lived the lives of women in the society and in a hostile society. So you hear, here's, it's so interesting. It's not just the way they vote. It is the way they act in oral argument, the questions that they ask, the way they press their male brethren on the court to take seriously life experiences, what it would mean. The classic example is this girl who was stripped search, Savannah Redding. And when the Savannah Redding case came before the Supreme Court, the liberal men on the Supreme Court were yucking it up about how funny it was to be naked in school, and they were remembering their happy days in the locker room. And you actually, uh, Nina Totenberg tells me that Ruth Bader Ginsburg actually got red in the face. You can hear it in the recording of the oral argument, her saying, this is... This is not what it feels like to a 13-year-old girl. She brought that experience to the party. And I think it matters enormously. And they had to listen to her describe the difference. There are
1: plenty now of conservative women judges who are potentially in the pipeline to be on the Supreme Court. Edith Jones on the Fifth Circuit. Janice Rogers Brown's on the DC Circuit really conservative judges who, I wouldn't presume to say, are I mean, who have a woman's experience of of a fullness of life, that's okay with you?
2: So here's the difference, I think, and that is the easier the world got for women, the more their experience resembled men's experience. And so the extra insight that Sotomayor was talking about that they would bring becomes less, they still have an iconic role to play. I can't begin to tell you how many people, young women, said to me when Sandra Day O'Connor was appointed to the Supreme Court. It meant so much to me because it meant that I could aspire to the highest job. I speak to a lot of young women lawyers. I could aspire to the highest job in my profession. But that phenomenon gets less as the society becomes more inclusive of women. And that's why I think Sotomayor is such an interesting example because she's now bringing to the court a different kind of experience, the experience of being poor, the experience of coming from a culture that of an immigrant culture. And so she's doing that. So my answer would be that it's the difference of the experience that really enriches it.
1: I don't think I buy it. I, I, you know, wouldn't you just rather have a judge who agrees with what you want?
2: Well, I will say this. My second case that I argued in the Supreme Court, Sandra Day O'Connor, was there. My first case, she was not there. My second case, she was there. And she voted against me. And if you had asked me at that moment whether it meant more to me that the working men and women that I was representing would have, you know, a little more money in their pockets, or whether I would have Sandra Day O'Connor on the court, it would have been an easy answer. But I'm now, in the fullness of my experience, um, looking at the society with a broader lens. And, and I think it I think it, it helps as you go along. Clarence Thomas is a harder case. I, I,
1: that's why I mentioned him, because right, I, I knew he, he was so a hard case.
2: Right. Yeah. Because, you know, um, there's a wonderful new book about Thurgood Marshall that just came out. Will Hagrid wrote it. And after you read my book, I recommend it. Um, the, I don't see evidence. First of all, he says nothing in oral argument. And oral argument is a little drama, OK? They're talking to each other. And it's recorded. And the, you know the Supreme Court journalism journalists listen to it if they're not there, right? So it, it really matters. It's a kind, so he says nothing. So he could be pink or blue, wouldn't make any difference because he says nothing in that dramatic moment. That's one thing. The other thing is that unlike Sotomayor, who is using her experience with poverty and immigration status to dissent and write opinions that will enlighten us about human experience. Clarence Thomas doesn't do that either. So I'm not sure he, he doesn't he doesn't fulfill his role that I've described. Here,
1: here's a fun fact, February 22nd, 2016, which is coming up soon, will be the 10th anniversary of the last time Justice Thomas asked a question. Right. Uh, <laughs> 10 years.
2: It's not, you know, it's weird. I think everybody can agree that it's yeah. weird. But I think that you and I both know that it's meaningful. Yeah. That, right, that dialogue. No, it's,
1: it's, it's, it's weirdness. But he's a different subject. Let's, let's go back to Justice Ginsburg. You think she should have quit while Obama was president?
2: So the time for her to quit would have been when there was a Democratic Senate, because um, I don't think that a Senate of the opposite party of the president has confirmed a nominee since Clarence Thomas. I think that, so it's 92, so it's. 23 years Hmm. since a Democratic Senate has confirmed the nomination of a Republican president or vice versa. I'm pretty sure I'm right about that.
1: I think you are. I hadn't thought of it in those terms. So
2: the time for, so, and there's a reason. But
1: she she was on the Supreme, and there were six years of a Democratic Senate under Obama. Yeah.
2: Well, uh, no, I don't think it was six years. It was, was it six years?
1: Yeah, it was, was, well, most of the first, term Uh because there there was the whole, yeah, no, it was was six six years. years. It was till, it was 2008 till 14, yeah.
2: Okay, so (sighs) she was not going to leave in 2010. That was the June that Martin Ginsburg died. There was no chance that was going to happen. And after the midterm elections of 2010, the politics got a lot harsher and i don't with the filibuster i don't know that they would have been able to get a replacement through after the midterm elections of 2010 at the supreme court level who would have been to her liking
1: but by delaying and you know she's 82 years old and she is in relatively good health but she has i think you can agree had over her lifetime had every disease known to humanity
0: <laughs> you uh, live the,
1: the, so She, forget the filibuster, she is taking the risk that President Cruz (laughs) appoints her replacement, right? No, I I mean, seriously, right?
2: She's taking that chance. She is, as I actually was sitting in this audience when she was sitting in this chair, so you can imagine how much it means to me to be here tonight. Um, And this was a year or two ago. And I am here to tell you she was in perfect mental shape. She actually regaled us with long, memorized passages of the United States Constitution that she recited for us. So she's got a great instrument. And I think she is not prepared to stop using it. Um, And I think that the Republicans would have filibustered anybody who wasn't a real cipher. Um, And so I don't think the sacrifice is as stark. It's not like Obama could have nominated Pam Carlin, my personal choice for her replacement, um, uh, and not faced a fierce filibuster.
1: Um, there was a period there where um, O'Con- uh, O'Connor left in 2005. Bush nominated um, Harriet Myers, and that didn't go so well, and so she withdrew, and then Sam- Samuel Lido took her place. Right. Oh, there- so there is this period where Ginsburg, is the only woman on, on the court from 2005 until Sotomayor comes in 2009. Right. What, what was that like?
2: So Ginsburg was lonely in her own words. She said, if somebody asked me what it felt like, I would say, I'm lonely. Um, so I think the most delicious thing I can share with you about that is that because at conference the... Chief Justice speaks, and then the justices speak in order of seniority. Um, O'Connor was so senior that she could make the argument on behalf of the women plaintiffs and litigants in the cases that Ginsburg cared about, and she would speak first. And And she was also the swing vote. So once O'Connor spoke, Ginsburg didn't No, 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 really... you, you
1: mean O'Connor, O'Connor spoke. spoke- O'Connor first. spoke first. O'Connor spoke first, yes. She what Yes, she was very senior exactly. by the time she, she was left. Very senior, yeah. Yeah.
2: and she was a swing vote. So once O'Connor spoke, Ginsburg didn't have to carry the water, okay? Right. When O'Connor left, Ginsburg got a full facial blast of, what an interesting idea, Mary, now we'll just wait for some man to say it. She did not get paid attention to, and she has said this, in conference, the way she and she did, she maybe she never was getting paid attention to, but she didn't have to because O'Connor, as in so many ways, was her offensive line, and and so I, she was very lonely without O'Connor, and she also didn't have anybody to like graps about it with afterward, um, because O'Connor was gone. Um, so I think that it's, it's interesting how the structure of the Supreme Court rules and behavior had an impact there.
1: So, we now have a new generation of women on the Supreme Court and um, Elena Kagan in particular is someone who seems like a sort of, they they just have a lot in common and they, they have become good friends but they are very different generationally. Elena Kagan is a year younger than Jane Ginsburg, uh-huh. Ruth's daughter, uh-huh. uh, which gives you some idea of, yeah. of how different they are between them. Do you think that is, wh- what do you think about that relationship?
2: Ginsburg and Kagan? Yeah. Ginsburg and Kagan were very tight before. Kagan used to send clerks to Ginsburg. So Kagan was one of the professors who, this is like a big deal, getting to be a Supreme Court clerk. So the professors who are, who the Supreme Court justices pick to vet the law, you know, their star students for clerkships, get to be more powerful, at like Harvard and stuff, than other professors do. So Kagan and Ginsburg were tight. Kagan has said that she would never be where she is if it hadn't been for Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And she's talking about Reed v. Reed, the 1971 case where the Supreme Court said for the first time that the Equal Protection Clause applies to sex discrimination full stop. That's the first time they said it. They had actually said the opposite. And, you know, even I am young enough so that I remember swimming in the stream of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's work at the ACLU. So you can imagine what it meant to Elena Kagan. She changed the world. Once you make, and Kagan says that, once you make formal legal equality, Elena Kagan bobs to the surface like a bubble. Right, there is absolutely nothing keeping Elena Kagan down except no girls allowed, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg changed that. So, so it's Sotomayor, in many ways, is the more interesting younger justice because she said a wise Latina woman, and so forth. And when she was getting heat for it in the nomination process, remember, in 2000. That was a big controversy, was that a big statement. Controversy. That was basically
1: the only controversy they, about her nomination.
2: They made her take it back. But here's a dirty little secret. Life tenure means never having to say you're sorry. <laughs> so, when she got on the, and, oh, about Ginsburg. At that moment, Somebody asked, somebody had the good sense to ask Ruth Bader Ginsburg what she thought about whether women would, through the fullness of their experience, maybe reach a different conclusion, and Ginsburg said yes. She defended Sotomayor in that controversy, and then when Sotomayor got on the court, she began using her different voice, starting with that wonderful autobiography.
1: Which is a great book. It's a great I, I don't know if people book. Have, I, when they finish Sisters-in-Law. And before another, you bring or, out your book. Uh, right, yeah. But right I mean, it, it's, you know, she, she is not much of a opinion writer know. that, you know, you, makes you stop in your tracks. No. But that book is just so rich. And, you know, like, she remembers all these meals she had from, like, when she's 14. I can't remember what I ate two weeks ago. She was diabetic.
2: <laughs> what she ate meant a huge... Important food is very yeah but I mean
1: it's just it's you know it's but it's it's rich emotional life yeah family life so
2: she's giving us the experience of a wise Latina woman and I and and she's now also doing it in oral argument and in her dissents so
1: (laughs) okay we're going to go to questions soon and before we do that I want to sort of ask you a question about you which which I think is so interesting Your, your last book before this you have been shockingly uh, productive was this wonderful book called Victory, which is a history of the gay rights movement. And and then you, you write this book, both of which I think are safe to say are really optimistic books. Yeah. They are books about how the world can get better and has gotten better. Right. Why would you write anything like that? Uh, um, no, but, I, 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 but like, why, why two optimistic books?
2: So there's a terribly selfish answer to this. I, I've always been interested in the gay revolution, okay? So, um, and when I said I was going to call my book Victory, and I got all this heat for it because, you know, it's how do you know, and it's not over, and I was like, no, it's happening. 2008, I got my book contract. You could look it up, and I knew it was happening. It was such a wonderful experience to write about a movement that was succeeding, right? And especially since the emotional heart of that book is the AIDS epidemic, which was so hard to write. And I would interview people, and in the middle of an interview, there would be a silence. The first time it happened, I was like, what? And I looked up, and the person was crying. It was that hard. And then to have it come up from that to the victory was so beautiful. So I must confess, I did kind of look around this time for something that would have a happy
1: end. Well, good. I know. I I, I think that's <laughs> true.
2: And, and and
1: you know, I I think it is worth noting. And and I don't I, I don't mean this in any cynical way. That that you know, it is very easy. I mean, this week, I suppose, that's in particular, that you know, the the world is full of misery as yeah. it has always been. Yeah. But there are wonderful success stories about people and movements right. that, that succeed and make life better for millions of people.
2: And it's really important, the absolute payoff of this book has been speaking to the young women in their law firms that are inviting me and the companies that they work for, and being able to say to them, look, there are lessons in here for how you do it. Okay, so one of the questions from the audience recently was if you could just tell us a couple things to remember from this book. If you have a movement that succeeds, then it's gonna have information about how to make a movement that succeeds. And that's my job. I want to help people learn how to make social movements, to make America more and more inclusive as Ruth Bader Ginsburg has as her ideal. From the information that I can gather, so that's another really good reason to pick a movement that succeeded because we can learn from it.
1: I'm convinced.
2: There we go. Um, I convinced. Okay, let's
1: go to some questions. Please ask at the microphone. Yes, I have Wait, 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 one second. One second. I have to like to read my instructions here. Um, Tell us your name. Don't give a speech, and (laughs) that's it. Okay, so, my uh, name yeah. is Reba Shamansky. I have two brief questions about each justice. Is it well, true well, 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 anyway? The, right. You'll see they are very brief. Good. Is it true that um first of all, could you explain to me um the Justices Ginsburg's opposition or criticism of Roe versus Wade? Okay, that's just, one. All right, well, that's one. Two, What's the next and one? And the two is did am I correct?
2: Did Sandra Day O'Connor publicly regret her vote on Bush versus Gore? Okay, the fast answer. Uh, as to the latter, she spoke words to the Chicago Tribune editorial board that sounded a little bit, she said, you know, maybe maybe we should have just left it alone. That's what she said. My, my opinion about Sandra Day O'Connor is she's Edith Piaf. Je ne regret rien. She never looks back. She never, even when she had cancer, she had, gave a whole speech about having breast cancer. She's like, well, I gathered all the facts and I made up my mind and I just didn't look back. And that is a direct quote from her. So she, I believe she does not look back. And that's good because when you're first, you don't want to be that umpire who called the ball and then changed her mind and said it was a strike and there wasn't a woman umpire for the next 30 years or something. It was really useful, but I do not think she uh, has said she regrets Bush v. Gore. Roe v. Wade is an interesting, I just had a piece in the Huffington Post about it, if you want to look it up. Roe v. Wade is an interesting thing. Ruth Bader Ginsburg said she thought that it should have been decided on the basis of women's equality, which were the cases that she was weaving right around it. Reed v. Reed was before Roe v. Wade, then there was Roe v. Wade, and then Ginsburg immediately had the rest of her cases. So she's weaving a skein of equality around women. And she thought that should be the approach to their reproductive rights. And of course, control of your reproduction is absolutely based on women's ability to lead a flourishing life. Okay, they're equally to men. Okay. But I think I think that Roe v. Wade is a very good opinion. And I think that the criticism of Roe v. Wade was really heavily overstated. But, but you,
1: Ginsburg, it wasn't just the, the basis because the decision was decided on the basis of a right to privacy right. And, and the right of a woman to talk to her doctor. And, and, and Ginsburg and others have criticized it as it's like a doctor's rights opinion. It's not a women's rights opinion. But But beyond that, she also said that she thought the court sort of pushed too far, that the country was moving in that direction already, and in 1973, saying all 50 states have to have legalized abortion, was galvanized the opposition.
2: So uh, two very wonderful scholars, Reva Siegel and Linda Greenhouse, have researched that argument, and it turns out it's factually false. Dead wrong. Right. Just facts. The facts are wrong. It's very unusual for Ruth Bader Ginsburg to do this. I was surprised when I realized how wrong it was. Um, The other thing is I think that the people who criticize the opinion in Roe v. Wade for being a doctor's rights opinion haven't read it recently. It's actually a pretty good opinion because it puts women's health front and center. And we're about to have... A full facial blast of what it's like to make the decisions one small slice at a time Sandra Day O'Connor finally got her way and each case involves whether whatever the state is up to is placing an undue burden on women and what that means is that the swing vote on the Supreme Court of the United States gets to decide what women's lives should be like case by case every time it's completely incoherent and and I believe it has totally lost sight. Why should women's lives be burdened at all, unless it's for their health? It's lost sight. Then yep. the third thing is, I've actually been thinking about this because I did just write about it. The third thing is that Roe v. Wade came up with another case, Doe v. Bolton. There was another case with a much more liberal abortion law from uh, Georgia. And so what exactly does Ruth Bader Ginsburg think the Supreme Court should have done with that? Right? It's easy for her to say, well, they could have just struck down the Texas law from the 19th century and waited to see what came next. But they were face to face with a very liberal law in that very case. So they didn't have a lot of breathing room.
1: Yes, sir. I, 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 hold on. I don't think that microphone is on to our... All right. Try, try again. No? There we go. I'm Jim Pusinich. I'm a docent here. Um, My question, a hypothetical question on the filibuster idea. If in 2016 we get another Democratic president and we get a Democratic Congress, and in 2017 or 2018 one of the conservatives leaves the court, would the Republicans filibuster for two years or three years even? Sure make my job interesting if they do. (laughs) What do you think?
2: So I'm actually working on a piece about that now. Two very prominent conservative legal scholars, Josh Blackman and Randy Barnett, have said, just leave it empty, just live with an equally divided court. Um, I don't think enough notice has been taken of that, of the fact that they have said that and what its implications are, but your question raises it very well, so it is certainly possible that they, I know that they are revving up the conservative legal movement to, to filibuster and and leave it leave the seat open.
1: Well, what's particularly remarkable about the issue that you raise is that there has not been right. a justice. I mean, from the opposition party really since Clarence Thomas replaced Thurgood Marshall, although Byron White had gotten pretty conservative by the time Ruth Ginsburg replaced him. But almost every uh, justice since then has been a Republican replacing a Republican, although, again, Samuel Alito replacing Justice O'Connor. Alito is a lot more conservative than O'Connor, even though they're in the same party. But, you know, when you have Ginsburg, uh, you have um, Sotomayor replacing Souter, you have Kagan replacing uh, Stevens, you, you haven't had a shift in the balance of power in the right. court. Your question raises, what happens if, say, Scalia leaves when Hillary Clinton's yeah. president? Yeah, That's when... Th-
2: yeah, but I'm telling I'm not, you... I'm
1: not pandering to this right. left-wing but, but audience. But your, but your answer is... Be, that-
2: warned, that, be warned that the conser- right, conservatives have started thinking about this as they fully understand the importance of the court and have started talking about the doomsday scenario that they would be willing to put on the table, and then you have an equally divided court with very bizarre consequences. But you
1: could end up with eight justices on the court forever. The the, the Democrats out of power could do the same thing. You know know what, I don't, I mean, mean, sure, you could have six, you could have four. If you don't have people confirmed, you can just, the number can shrink. I, I, I with all due respect to Josh Blackman and Randy Barnett, I don't think it's going to happen. I think whoever gets appointed will get a vote and in all likelihood will be confirmed for right. what it's worth. That's what I okay. think. I, mean, I mean, you know, I don't know who the vacancy is, I don't know who the nominee is, but oh, oh over
2: single here. digits for K- and Republicans voting for K to confirm Kagan and Soto Mayor single digits five
1: Republicans but it's vote. also it's a it's a free vote it's a free against vote. them it's a free when vote. you know the person's going to be right. confirmed anyway. Right. Right. Yes. My name is Norman Arnoff, and this is my question. How do you compare the acceptance on the court of Justice Brandeis and Cardozo and Justice Thurgood Marshall to the acceptance on the court of um, Justice O'Connor and Justice Ginsburg? So so you're you're saying the first two Jews on the court, the first African American on the court. Correct. What, What do you...
2: Well, I I would quote Justice Stevens about this. Um, uh, When I pressed Justice Stevens to tell me what he really thought about Sandra J. O'Connor, he said, she never gave us any trouble at all. (laughs) It's in the book. Um, And Stevens read it. I know that because he said something nice about it in the back. So um, I think that she did very well. She just didn't give them any trouble. She would go around Robin Hood's barn to go to the bathroom and stuff. When Ginsburg came, she, suddenly there was a ladies' room near where they were, the robbing chamber. So, um, so she and Justice Stevens said, it's odd to think about it. Jeff, maybe you can weigh in here. He said, she always got her work in on time. It's like what is this an assembly line? Well,
1: but 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 I mean ask them about David Souter who right, did not get his right, work in on time. Right. I mean that you know right. the or Supreme Harry Court Blackman. is many things. It's also a workplace. Right. And and you know some right. are better at doing their jobs than others in a purely uh, mechanical way. So so that is not as patronizing and ridiculous oh, as no, it sounds. Oh no, I didn't think yeah. he
2: was being patronizing. Yeah. He clearly sincerely valued it. Yeah. Um so I think she was very well accepted. It, and that, that was at the... when I, I circle around back to her at the end of the book and say, look, you know, there are reasons why I Linda Hirschman with my beliefs. I'm critical of her, but she was a great first. She was a great first. She always knew how to get along with powerful men, and she was decisive, and she was extremely politically clever and strategic and could really read people. And so she was accepted very so, well. So
1: was Justice Brandeis, but his reception was very hostile.
2: Right, they were not, by the time O'Connor got up there, Warren Burger was her greatest fan. And
1: and, and also remember the country was a very different place when, when Brandeis was appointed. I don't know how many of you have had the misfortune to hear of a justice named James McReynolds, who served on the court from 1914 to 1941, who was such an appalling anti-Semite that he used to get up and leave the conference room whenever Brandeis would speak. I mean, the, the court and the country was just a different place. And whatever you thought of of the court in the 60s, 70s, it, it, it's inconceivable that that sort of incivility would be would be even considered well, by the time. Well, when
2: Nixon was considering appointing a woman <coughs> to Rehnquist, he ultimately picked Rehnquist, So, um, but there was talk that he was going to appoint a woman, and Warren Berger said to him, I will resign. I will resign my post if you appoint a woman. Eight years later, uh, Berger goes on a houseboat cruise on Lake Powell with uh, Sandra Day O'Connor as another guest on the boat, and she so charms him that he became her greatest advocate, when a vacancy came open in the Reagan administration. And, you know, people
1: change and the country changes. I mean, that's, you know. Anyway, yes, sir. Hi, Dan Harrison. I get the impression, this is not an O'Connor Ginsburg question, but we are wandering a bit afield. I get the impression that oral arguments really don't matter to the justices. Thomas's idiosyncrasy of not doing it for 10 years notwithstanding, I don't pick up when I watch C-SPAN, when I read newspapers, etc., that the thrust of a decision has been influenced at all by, um, generally speaking, by oral arguments. Can you comment on that?
2: I'm going to hand that off to my colleague.
1: Um, I've asked justices this question, um, and they say two things. One is they say, my mind is changed at oral, ar- it's funny, they all say this, more or less the same thing about this part of the question. Um, my mind is changed at oral argument approximately twice a year. You know, out of seventy cases, it's not a lot of cases, but and, and they tend to be the less controversial cases where you know justices, you know, you don't, the oral argument I've always thought matters least in the biggest cases. You don't need oral argument to tell you whether the Constitution protects a woman's right to choose an abortion. I mean, they they know what they think on that issue, but you know, in interpreting an ERISA law, you know, a provision of you know the, the, that they might actually have very much an open mind. It matters more, though, than just the two changing its minds. The justices use oral argument, not so much to elicit information from from the counsel, but to communicate with their colleagues. Chief Justice Rehnquist established a um, social norm at the court that they never discuss cases with each other before oral argument and then not until their conference at the end of the week of oral argument. So they don't know what each other think. And they ask questions that are argumentative in nature and they try to persuade their colleagues through their through their questions. But justices also circulate memoranda to each other outlining positions and seeking to convince their that's colleagues. After, they that's after oral argument. Right. And, and and look, I'm not trying to say that it, the briefs are, are clearly more important than the oral argument and we journalists focus probably unduly on the oral arguments because they're, they're the theater that we can watch. But they are not as unimportant as, as they seem either. So anyway, that's what I think.
2: And, and I think it's important to recognize political theater when you see it, okay? That's a very important phenomenon. And since I was looking at cases that are really controversial, the first time the Supreme Court of the United States recognized sexual harassment as a violation of the Civil Rights Act rather than as just a cozy way of acting, Um, the first time... I mean, these are, like, really dramatic cases. And um, and you listen to the oral argument in those cases, and it's recorded, and it's reported by the Supreme Court Journalism Group. It, It... it matters larger, in, more largely, in the political uh, environment. Um,
1: I have one thing to say before we wrap things up, well, we, but we, it's very important.
2: We actually have a little time.
1: Oh really? Oh, I yeah. thought you were you were telling telling me to get get I, going. I,
2: in case you were finished, I was no, going no, to ask a question, but you well, go Well, all ahead. right. But
1: no, th- this is the thing I have to say. Christmas is coming. <laughs> Hanukkah <laughs> is coming. coming. Hanukkah is also coming. Um, Linda will be signing her book afterwards, and it makes an excellent gift, so everyone should go buy it. Anyway, so you had a question.
2: Well, I I just wondered if you had thought ahead, say, 10, 20, 30 years, what the court might look like. Uh, I read a book some years ago called The Coming Democratic Majority by Roy um, Richardson right, and John Judas. A very, I think, important book for people who care about these kinds of things to read. And, and I go back and forth about whether they're right. If they're right, then the court will be not so white, not so male, not so conservative. If they're wrong, it won't.
1: But, but, the, the, <laughs> but the, there's also another way that Supreme Court uh, uh, appointments reflect the politics of the country. Right. In, it, it, like in the early days of the Republic, it really mattered what region you came from and there always had to be a Massachusetts justice, and a Southern justice, and a Western justice. Now that has sort of fallen away. We had two justices from Arizona, for a Rehnquist and O'Connor for a long time. Then religious differences were enormously important. And the first Catholic was um, Chief Justice Tawney before the Civil War. And then uh, you had the first two Jews. Now we have a Supreme it's Court of six Catholics and three Jews. No Protestants on the Supreme right. Court. Um, so, I mean, that's that, you know, I, I, we are a long way from having, um, you know, race and gender not matter at all. Right. But I mean, religion used to be a really big deal, and now it's, you know, it's just not.
2: It's ideology. Ideology, yeah, ideology is, the is, the current current is what matters. Dubai. Yeah. And this is a reflection. I, I've been incubating for a long time a book about the conservative movement. Talk about a successful social movement in America. Yeah. That is really so. So uh, one of the many things that the conservatives have done, and particularly the legal conservatives through the Federalist Society and so forth, is they have demanded that people get down to bedrock ideologically. What do you really think it means to be human? Who really deserves to be equal? So you can't have a wishy-washy middle person like Sandra Day O'Connor anymore because we're talking at bedrock, and that divide is deep, and it runs through the country, and the court follows the election returns. Jeffrey Tubin, Linda Hirschman, thank you so much for thank a great night. All.